Somebody last night told me they were audio challenged, and I'm a little bit audio challenged myself, so I'm, I'm more sympathetic to that. The other thing I was thinking about, you know, more than, I don't know, 25 years ago before this church was renovated, they had the rust-colored carpet, you may remember, and um, there used to be a woman that sat somewhere about halfway back on that aisle. And uh, at the time, there were three priests and one deacon, and the, the priest or the deacon would preach all six masses on the weekend. And I got a little tired of my homily by about the fourth time, so I just didn't listen anymore. But there was a woman who sat at the 1030 Mass who just had this look of just rapt attention, like this is the best preaching I have ever heard in my life, which as a new priest was encouraging to me. But then one, one day I was standing out there in the atrium and she walked past me, and I saw that's just her natural facial expression. That's just how she looks. But uh, it helped me get through the first uh, six months or so. So. so let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, almighty and eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For he assumed at his first coming the lowliness of human flesh, and so fulfilled the design you formed long ago, and opened for us the way to eternal salvation, that when he comes again in glory and majesty, and all is at last made manifest, we who watch for that day may inherit the great promise in which now we dare to hope. And so, with angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, and with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the hymn of your glory, as without end we acclaim, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the things I was thinking about just driving out here uh, from the Pastoral Center, which is right down in the Oak Lawn area, and I had kind of had two things to talk about tonight. Um, one part has three parts, which is looking at the various ways in which God conspires to touch our hearts and form our hearts and shape them. And the fourth is on the Eucharist, and this, this prayer, um, for the next two nights, I kind of picked up on the first part of this prayer, the first coming of Christ in the lowliness of human flesh in Bethlehem, that he kind of sneaks into the world. Um, and we know the story well from the Gospels, but I think at the time that it happened, it just happened in a completely anonymous way. Um, it happened in a little village in the middle of nowhere, um, out on the edge of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the dominant power. It happened in a little place that was barely a village and to a woman who just lived in a poor town, and you know, just an ordinary Jewish woman, not indistinguishable from the rest of those, although I wonder sometimes 
if um, people looked at her the way they'd look at sometimes a good people, she just thinks she's too good for the rest of us because she had this purity of heart. And I always wonder what did that look like and what did that feel like to the people around her? Or what might it look like even to, you know, to experience that herself, um, to have this kind of purity of heart, um, which um, you know, none of the rest of us have that, at least not until someday we'll be saints. And so the first part of the, tonight is picking up more on, look, on the looking at the coming of Christ in human flesh and the lowliness of human flesh and how that happens in history, ultimately how it happens for us because we're part, we have been in a sense conscripted into this mystery. And then the fourth, uh, the fourth section is just a little reflection on the Eucharist because in some ways we're called always to um, bring our whole self to, to the Eucharist um, because the mystery of Christ continues to unfold in the world in the mystery of the Eucharist. Um, and, t- and then tomorrow night, we look at when he comes again in glory and majesty and all is at last made manifest. So the handout for tomorrow night uh, looks at how do we prepare for the second coming of Christ? And I mean, how do we even take that seriously because it remains such an abstraction? Um, so I also realized that the second handout I gave you on the Eucharist is defective. And I'll, I'll get to that later on, but um, I realized in thinking about what was on that, that handout, it, I, for, first of all, it, it already has too many words and it's missing a piece. But I'll tell you what the, the piece is and if you have a pen, you can write it in. Um, but again, the focus, the focus on tonight is on his, the lowliness of his coming in the flesh. What I was thinking about driving out here is the kind of anxiety um, when we stop and think about it, that goes along with being a human being in this world. There's a deep sense of anxiety. I mean, we, we experience times of peace, you know, we experience times of happiness, but we're not home. We're away from home. And we have a long and a perilous journey ahead of us, or at least a journey into the unknown. And one of the quotes I have on the page tonight, you know, talks about the need for us to move forward and in a sense to be moving into the unknown. Um, the, the way Abraham was called to move out into the unknown, not knowing where he was going and putting his faith in the word of the, of the Lord that he would make him a father of great nations. And I think sometimes it's hard to pay attention to that anxiety um, because in a sense, um, there's nothing we can do about it. We're not home. And in the letter to the Hebrews towards the end, it says, here we have no lasting city. We await a city which is to come, that our, our true citizenship is in heaven and that we're passing through. And so how do we live as people who are passing through um, and somehow paying attention to the comings of Christ in the world as he came in, in the lowliness of human flesh 2,000 years ago, as he comes to us now, um, and as we await his coming in glory. You know, since we live between those, those comings, um, even though he comes to us in each moment with the fullness of grace. And another one of the quotes I put on there from the catechism, because these words have been on my mind for a long time, is that the solicitude of God is concrete and immediate. That the love of God and the way in which he draws us is not something abstract. It's not something one size fits all. Um, it's not anything that can be compared one to another. I mentioned last night in the, in the uh, apparitions to, our, to Juan Diego by Our Lady of, of Guadalupe that she had singled him out that she, I mean, she, I mean, how does somebody from heaven watch a person grow? I mean, this was a 50-year-old man who had been baptized as an adult in 1524 and was singled out. And everything in his history, 
including his formation in the Aztec religion and the, uh, on the way in which he honored his ancestors and his grandparents. I mean, did he participate in these sacrifices? He probably did as a young man. I mean, everybody did. That was just part of the, a part of the nation. But somehow all of that set him up, <clears throat> first of all, to somehow break through, I'm talking too fast again, huh? Somehow break through the violence of the Spanish conquistadors and the defeat of their people and the defeat of their people's religion, which was even worse. It's like the gods have abandoned us. Why, why are we even alive anymore? I mean, our, our gods have abandoned us. But something was able to break through into the heart of Juan Diego in a way that he could say, no, there's something true here. There's something beautiful here. And he accepted bap baptism and he lived with that for several years before he was walking to Mass on a Saturday morning, December 9th, 1531, and encountered this beautiful young woman who had his face, who spoke his language, and who gave him a mission, who singled him out. And I think that we should you know, meditate on the ways in which the Lord has singled each one of us out. Sometimes we can just feel like part of a crowd or just an ordinary person or whatever, however, we, however we talk to ourselves. But to belong to the body of Christ um, is to have received a very singular call, come follow me. That something happened in our lives that said, okay, I will. I mean, you're here. And, and you've said, okay, I will. And you may be more attentive to the ways in which you failed in that or the one, you know, the kind of, what the heck is going on here kind of experience and feeling like you don't know exactly what's happening or where it's going, but it's a, it's a singular call. And I think part of what I had in mind for tonight and tomorrow night is how do we pay attention to this? I mean, how do we kind of break through sometimes the haze and the distraction and maybe the patterns of sinfulness or just the things that weigh on us from our past in order just to listen? And I think that's what I would like to consider tonight and to have you pay attention to in a sense the conspiracy of grace in your own life, your own ancestors, your own genealogy, you know, even the sinfulness, uh, you know, because Paul says where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. So even where we can look at patterns of sinfulness in our life, we can also look at the way in which the Lord has bought good out of that, which is what he does. That's his job, um, but that's also his, his genius, his genius for us. So I'd like to do in the first part of this, and the first part has three parts, is to look at the this conspiracy of grace in uh, the life of a young man, a native of Africa. And if you watch the TV MASH, you may have heard this story already. Um, I like the story, so I'll just tell it again. And the second is to look at that as it unfolds in the life of Jesus, and particularly in the genealogy as given in the Gospel of Matthew. So on the fourth Sunday of Advent, year A, which is this coming Sunday, you can either hear the long form or the short form. And the long form has all the names in it, and the short form doesn't. So, uh, but the long form prepares, has all those names preparing for what happens in the second part. And then the third part of this is to look at the conspiracy of grace in your own life, to attend to it, to meditate on it, to see it, to savor it and also to know that there is always a challenge in it, a challenge to move forward. And I'll go through some of those things uh, as we go through the, uh, the talk this night, tonight. The fourth part then 
is a, a reflection on the Holy Eucharist and its connection to this, the way in which we try to live out this grace-filled past. We bring it to, our, to the Lord in the Eucharist as we celebrate the Eucharist um, and the way in which it opens us up on a future full of hope um, because that's also part, a part of what this, the prayer says, that um, we inherit the great promise in which now we dare to hope. Um, so the first, and this is the conspiracy of grace in the life of a young man who grew up on the north coast of Africa in the fourth century. And he was the oldest of three children. He was the favorite of his mother, who was deeply devout, and she wanted her son to be deeply devout, but he was not. You know, this is, this is not a new problem where people look at their children and think, why don't they have any faith? Um, you know, I love them. I, I want them to have what's most valuable to me. So Monica is looking at her son Augustine in the fourth century and thinking, what's wrong with this boy? Why won't he, why won't he follow the Lord? And, um, but he had no interest in it. He found the Bible boring. He was a brilliant student. He found other subjects much more intriguing. And he looked in many different places for answers, but not in Christianity. He lived what might also be called now a promiscuous life. Um, his mother prayed for him. She prayed for years for his conversion. Um, once in a while, a young woman who I'm, I'm confirming, and I ask her what her confirmation name is, and she says, Monica. And I said, well, you need to be then a world-class prayer because the Lord is gonna send somebody to you to pray for for a long time. Um, and I hope that you do that. But he left, um, he kind of got tired of his mom nagging him. And so he gave her the slip. Um, while she wasn't looking, he left North Africa, Hippo, and he went across the Mediterranean to Rome. He went up to Rome to Milan to study, and he was trying to get away from her. And she followed him anyway and finally caught up with him in northern Italy, in Milan. Um, there were, there he, the son came in contact with the bishop of Milan, uh, Ambrose, who has his own kind of conspiracy of grace in his life because he became, um, he was the civil magistrate of Milan and they had to elect a new bishop. Uh, they just elected him among the local clergy back then and there was a, a battle breaking out of the cathedral and they sent for, for Ambrose to, to make peace and somebody called out Ambrose for bishop, Ambrose for bishop and he ran away and they caught up with him and they convinced him that this was God's will for him so he was baptized, confirmed, uh, ordained a priest, or ordained a bishop in about, you know, just a matter of weeks. This hardly ever happens anymore. You know, they keep adding more and more time to seminary formation, but uh, Ambrose took the, took the quick route, but he took it very seriously. And he studied and he took very seriously his, uh, his oversight of the church in, in Milan. Anyhow, um, Ambrose, or, um, Augustine heard his preaching and uh, he was attracted by it. And he began to see something of the richness and the beauty of Christianity, but he also didn't feel able to make a commitment. He felt bound by his own sinful past. He, he started praying, but he would pray things like, Lord, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. And so one day he's sitting in a garden and he is um, agonizing over what he's gonna do, agonizing over his past sins, and he hears the voice of a child in a nearby place close to by where he is. And the, ch the child is chanting over and over again, take up and read, take up and read. 
and he wondered if it came from a child's game, like this is you know, a little chant like kids say when they're playing some kind of game, but he couldn't think of any of that, would, of that which was true. So he went back to the bench, and he had been sitting there with a friend, and he had left a copy there of the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And so if you think know, know something about St. Paul, you know that there was a conspiracy of grace in his life also that knocked him off his feet, that blinded him, and that turned him around, and that everything in his formation prior to that as a, as a Pharisee um, enabled him to preach the new gospel uh, to the people of the world at that time. And so uh, he picks up the words of Paul's letter to the Romans. This was on the first Sunday of Advent. He reads, uh, let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and lust, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. He wrote later in his autobiography, no further would I read nor needed I, for in instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as if it were of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And he accepted to be baptized and he became one of the great fathers of the church in the fourth and fifth century as the Bishop of Hippo back on the north coast of Africa where he was from. And so it was through the prayers of his mother Monica, through the preaching of Ambrose, through the voice of an unknown child, through the words of St. Paul, all those graces came together in that moment to touch his heart and to break through the hardness of his heart. And one of the quotes I put on the page, um, I came across uh, Bishop Danny Flores, who is the um, bishop now of Brownsville, also one of the last graduates of Holy Trinity Seminary back in the 80s. But he wrote in an article that he wrote many years ago, Memory is the special place of grace. Augustine, in his confessions, reads the book of his life through the light of the grace of conversion. Indeed, the overarching argument of the 13 books of the confessions proposes that only in the light of grace can the book of experience be properly read. Apart from this light, the book of life is an eccentric, egocentric, and for this reason, a wholly sorrowful tale. In the converting light, the sorrow gives way to, the jo to joy, precisely because the memory is not about Augustine nor about us, but about the Lord, who is now perceived to have been present there. So all through that story, the Lord is present through all these ways, finally breaking through um, into the, to the heart of Augustine. And if we were to read the book of our own life through the light of God's grace, where would you also find the surprising presence of God, oftentimes looking back because we don't perceive it in the moment because we're distracted or we're sorrowful or whatever it could be that's going on in our heart. That's part one. The second part is looking at the, uh, the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is one of the ways in which Matthew is telling us, authenticating who Jesus is. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. I remember when I was ordained a bishop six and a half years ago, some, somebody sent me my genealogy. You know, going back like, you know, this bishop ordained me, Kevin Farrell, and this bishop ordained him, and going all the way back to about 1541, and then uh, it disappears into the midst of history. I don't know what happened after that. But um, I put as a prelude to this Abraham, who's first in the list, and there are two quotes there from... Uh, the encyclical letter Lumen Fidei, which was uh, printed right at the beginning of the pontificate of Pope Francis, probably also a, a draft provided by Pope Benedict before that. But um, I just thought these were very beautiful in terms of speaking about Abraham as our father of faith, and I really wanted to provide them for your, for your reflection. Faith opens the way before us and accompanies our steps through time. 
Hence, if we want to understand what faith is, we need to follow the route it has taken, the path trodden by believers, as witnessed first in the Old Testament. Here a unique place belongs to Abraham, our father in faith. Something disturbing takes place in his life. God speaks to him. He reveals himself as a God who speaks and calls his name. Faith is linked to hearing. Abraham does not see God, but he hears his voice. Faith thus takes on a personal aspect. God is not the God of a particular place or of a deity linked to a specific sacred time, but the God of a person, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, capable of interacting with man and establishing a covenant with him. Faith, in our, faith is our response to a word which engages us personally to a thou who calls us by name. Then he goes on into in the second um, paragraph. I'm just going to read the last part of this uh, after the quote from Genesis. As a response to a word which preceded it, Abraham's faith would always be an act of remembrance. So he's always had to remember, this, remember that you were called. Remember that the, the origin comes from God. Yet this faith remembrance is not fixed on past events only, but as the memory of a promise. It becomes capable of opening up the future, shedding light on the faith to be t the path to be taken. We see how faith as a remembrance of the future, memoria futuri, is thus closely bound up with hope. So we recall all these things that have happened in our ancestors of faith as a way of also recognizing that they provide us the gift of hope for moving forward into the future because it is the same God who calls. And so I also put on the page just three, three divisions of the... Um, so if you do the first division, all these beautiful names, you may hear them this weekend, you may not. But Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah the, and, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. I think you know all these people already. I'm not going to go into who each one of them is. And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David the king. That's part one. So if you look on this page, part one gives you um, from the first call of Abraham to the height of, of Israel's existence as a kingdom under David. And so it kind of shows you part of the, of the greatness which the people of God are destined to be. Part of that story is there. That's part one. You know, part two is not so good. Um, as David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and so there is an adulteress in here. I mean, there are four women listed here, um, and two of them are faithful who actually helped move things along. Rahab, the harlot in, um, in, in Jericho, who helps the people take the city of Jericho after they cross into the promised land. Ruth, who's faithful to her, her daughter-in-law and goes back and becomes the grandmother of King David. And then um, Tamar, who seduces her father-in-law, Judah. And then... Uh, uh, the, the wife of Uriah who is seduced by David. All this kind of folds into the, into the ongoing. This is all part of Jesus' family tree. So if you ever look at your family tree and you think there's some characters here who are not so good, so you can join the club. It's right in the Bible. So David is the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the fruit of his adultery. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, and on down to the Babylonian uh, captivity. 
So that's the second part. They go from the height of power in the first part to the depths of disaster, exile, shame. It's as if everything is destroyed. It's where you get Genesis chapter 1 because they no longer have the land, they no longer have the temple, uh, they, they've been taken away from the land, they're in captivity, and they're thinking, it's over, God's abandoned us. And they say, no. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said on the first day, let there be light, and so our God is even greater than the, the sun God. He created it with just a word. And so it's, it's really an apologetic, it says all these foreign gods that have defeated our God, our God created them. So, he, so hang on, you're still the chosen people, don't give up. So they come back to the promised land after the deportation to Babylon, and you get the last part of it, starting with Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, down to Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so there's, from the time of the end of the exile to the birth of Jesus, there is a restoration, and there's also just a lot of anonymous people. Who are these people? You know, they're just the, the, the word of God, the promise is passed on almost anonymously through people who are no longer even known today. Um, and yet that's still part of the family tree of Jesus. And so just like in the story of uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, there is this rupture in, the, in her appearance. There's a rupture from both traditions, and yet there's a continuity as well. Because all this brings us down to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, and it is of her that the child is born. And so there's a rupture there also because all this brings us down to the moment in the fullness of time, and yet Joseph has nothing to do with the conception of Jesus. It is a brand new act of God, uh, a, gra a brand new revelation in the fullness of time, and um, typical of how God works through surprises. Um, and so through all this family tree, Jesus is revealing himself as the light of the world, a light that shines in the darkness. He also reveals to us our own dignity because the genealogy for each one of us is a unique way in which the word of God comes to us, the gift of life, first of all, from our parents, from our grandparents, on to the, the un unforgotten, the forgotten generations. But it also comes down to us through the small community of our forebears, but also as a community of faith. Our part of our genealogy is also the communion of saints, uh, the people who have passed on the life of Christ in the world and those uh, who through their writings, through their poetry, through their art, uh, through their sacrifices, through the stories that they're preserved, pass on faith to us in many different ways. Um, part of our genealogy is a parish community uh, or communities that sustain us over time. Um, all the ways in which the word of God comes down to us, a history of goodness and a history of heroism. So in the invitation then, in the third part, is to look at your own genealogy. Um, Paul tells the Corinthians, I think we're going on to the back page now, consider your own call. Where is that page? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. He's talking to the, the, um, the community of Corinth, which is largely the, the word of God took root there primarily through the slave community. Um, rather, God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong, and God chose the lowly and despised of the world to reduce to nothing those who are something, so that no human being might boast before God. It is due to him that you are in, in God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. 
So consider your own calling. Consider your own genealogy, the way in which the initiative of God has come into your life. Because the, the initiative is always from God, never from us. Abraham doesn't decide to take this trip to the promised land. He does because God calls him, and he goes forth as the word of God directs him. It emerges in some event, some encounter, in something that we can point to and tell a story about. Um, and whether that's something that develops gradually over a long period of time, or it's um, you know, the amazing grace experience, once I was lost, now I'm found. I was this way before, I'm this way after. Um, the conversion stories come in many different ways. Um, it may develop gradually, it may evoke fearfulness, it may evoke a feeling of unworthiness as it did for Juan Diego. You know, he said, find somebody else, find somebody who's at home in, in, in the place where you're sending me to go because I don't belong there. You know, I, I need to be carried there by somebody else. There had to be some acceptance of it. You had to say yes, um, you know, because it doesn't just happen. Um, we have to say yes and to remember the times in which you have come to a point where you said, okay, yes, I'm going to go this way and not that way. I'm going to accept this cross and not that. Um, you know, it happens in many different ways and, and having had to, to live with the consequences of the choice over time. The invitation is to call the unique shape of your own calling and is, in a sense, a genealogy, um, to let it move you to gratitude and wonder, um, to let it be the motive for how you live now, how you reach out to others, um, and how it has made you a new creation. Anybody who is in Christ is a new creation. And I put two paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, Paragraphs 302 and 303. One of the reasons I like this is because it never seems like God is in a big hurry, you know, that he's on a timetable, that this seems to unfold, like the, why the fullness of time was 2,000 years ago, why everything was ready in that moment, you know, and why it took that long. You know, that, that lies in the mystery of God's own genius. Um, and so God, as this pair of these paragraphs says, creation has its own goodness and proper perfection, but it did not spring forth complete from the hands of the creator. The universe was created in a state of journeying, in statu vie, towards an ultimate perfection yet to be attained, to which God has destined us. We're still on the way, we're not at home here. We call divine providence the dispositions by which God guides his creation towards this perfection. The witness of scripture is unanimous, that the solicitude of divine providence is concrete and immediate, that it's the fullness of grace given in every moment for whatever is asked. Daily bread as we pray in the Our Father. God cares for all from the least things to the greatest events of the world in its history. The sacred books powerfully affirm God's absolute sovereignty over the course, course of events. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases, and so it is with Christ, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. As the book of Proverbs states, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. But again, the, the uh, providence of the Lord is concrete and immediate, a grace given in every moment. And so that, that's something which is worth respond, re, uh, reflecting on. So I put down here a couple questions for reflection because I thought at some point I'm going to get tired of talking and you're going to get tired of listening to me talk. So I'd like you to take, uh, let me just set a timer here. Oh, I, don't bring my, I didn't bring my clock, so one potato, two potato, three potato. No. Anyhow, um, to take a look at the first two questions here. Who is responsible for bringing you to faith? And what did they do? 
Um, and what is a formative relationship event in the development of your faith? You know, what is it that makes you the person of faith that you are today? And what I'd like to do for about five minutes is just to turn to somebody, maybe somebody you didn't come here with, you know, that's not a member of your family, just to introduce yourself and to just tell a couple stories about number one and number two. We may come back to number three later on if there's time. So ready? Let's take about five minutes. You can talk in church, it's okay. I decided five, five minutes wasn't long enough, so uh, maybe you can come back to that and also maybe come back to it, uh, not something that you've talked about with the spouse or with family members for a while, just your own faith journey. What has brought you, you know, to this moment as a person of faith and what, do you, what you have gone through, what has influenced that, you know, what has made that happen. And so I was thinking about going into the Eucharist because of a phrase that... Um, comes from the Second Vatican Council and probably one of the most quoted phrases from the document on the Constitution on the Liturgy in Latin, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the 10th paragraph, where it says, the liturgy is the summit towards which the activity of the church is directed. It is also the fount from which all her power flows. For the goal of apostolic endeavor is that all who are made sons of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of his church, to take part in the sacrifice, and to eat the Lord's Supper. But I was thinking about it being a summit towards which all the church's activity goes, that in some ways all of our life is directed towards that, and ultimately towards the... Um, I mean, it's an earthly participation in the heavenly liturgy, which is our true home, um, with all of the saints and angels around the throne, people from every race, language, nation, and tongue, as the book of Revelation talks about. So in some ways, on earth, we're trying to model that. We're trying to become, we're trying to become that. We're trying to make ourselves fit for that kind of, of gathering because it includes all the children of God, and there are no second-class citizens there um, you know, there's no room for prejudice and racism and hatred and all the other things that tear us apart in this world. And even, you know, the Eucharist calls us to do what we can to be instruments and signs of, of peace and bridge builders between people of uh, different backgrounds and, and races. But I'm also thinking on the more personal level that, um, you know, it is the Eucharist, and in a sense, as we come to the Eucharist, we are, are kind of gathering ourselves up. Um, I've been trying to remember this story I remember it's an old story because it didn't have any uh, cell phones involved, but this, it's a Jewish woman living in New York City and she's talking to a friend of hers who's coming to visit. And so she's telling her how to get there on the phone. And so she says, now when you get off the subway, you come down one block, down Lenox, and my apartment complex has a, a buzzer on it, so you just hit the buzzer with your elbow and um, they'll let you in. And once you get inside, there's a second buzzer, you just hit that with your elbow, and it'll open up. And just tell the person you are, he'll direct you down the hall to the elevator. You'll just hit your elbow with the, uh, you know, your, the button with your elbow, and then hit, the, hit number seven, and it'll bring you up. And then once you get to my door, just hit the, hit the, the doorbell with your elbow, and I'll, I'll be just glad to see you. And, and the person said, well, well great. She said, but what's, what's all the thing with the elbow? She said, why am I doing that? I said, well, you're not coming empty-handed, are you? <laughs> so I think we said the same thing to the Lord. You know, you're, not, you're not coming to the Eucharist empty-handed, are you? I mean, you're coming with a gift. You're coming with yourself. And so on this handout that I put together, and um, 
You know, Pope Francis wrote this letter last summer, June 29th, and the title to it is on the very last words on the, on the back page, Desiderio Desiveravi, I have earnestly desired. And he starts the, the, the letter by saying, these words of Jesus, with which the account of the Last Supper opens, are the crevice through which we are given the surprising possibility of intuiting the depths of the love of the persons of the Most Holy Trinity for us. It's the very uh, beginning of the letter. Actually, the second paragraph, so I'm, but it has this word, I've earnestly desired, comes from Luke uh, 22:15, where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and you know, he sends some of the disciples ahead of time to prepare the room. And so he talks about Peter and John being sent ahead. He said, Peter and John were sent to make preparations to eat that Passover, but in actual fact, all of creation, all of history, which at last was on the verge of revealing itself as the history of salvation, was a huge preparation for that supper. So all that genealogy, all those things that have happened, in some ways, each time prepares us for the supper of the Lord. Peter and the others are present at that table, unaware and yet necessary. Necessary because every gift to be gift must have someone disposed to receive it. And so, in some way, we're coming, how can we come to the Lord disposed to receive the gift that he has there for us? And in some way, you know, pre preparing to bring a gift is a way of doing that, not as an exchange, but as an openness to receive the gift. And again, the, the, the disproportion between the immensity of the gift and the smallness of the one who receives it is infinite. I used that example last night of the, you know, the, the small ball and the big ball, the golf ball and the earth. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no proportion between us and God, and yet he desires us. Um, and that he, before our response to his invitation, well before, again, these are the words of the Holy Father, there is his desire for us. We may not even be aware of it, but every time we go to Mass, the first reason is that we are drawn there by his desire for us. For our part, the possible response, which is also the most demanding asceticism, is as always that surrender to his love, that letting ourselves be drawn by him. Indeed, every reception of communion of the body and blood of Christ was already desired by him at the Last Supper. So because he's the son of man, that's a unique event of the Last Supper, but because he's the divine son of God, he sees, he sees all of reality from that, pers um, that perspective, ourselves included. And so what I put together here was some notes on preparing for Mass, and I'll tell you later about what the defect is. Um, but in, in the preparation for the Mass, we bring our whole self. We have a sacrifice to offer, your sacrifice and mine. You know, the new translation of the liturgy that came out about 10, 12 years ago, changed that. He said, pray, brothers and sisters, that your sacrifice and mine may be acceptable to God the Father Almighty. But what is your sacrifice? You know, what do you bring? And the, the preparation steps are in some ways preparing that gift, which is what we do. Um, you know, we, we don't just say, here, you know, this is happy birthday. You know, we prepare the gift. We think of what, it wanted, what it, we want it to be. We wrap it. You know, we, we prepare it, and we prepare our hearts uh, for the gift. Um, so I put down three steps. The first, and each step, there's remote preparation, proximate, and in the moment. So the remote preparation is just the stable, habitual commitment to go. And that's something that may stand out in times of change. If you're on vacation, you have to ask yourself, you know, are we just going to come to, we're not going to be at All Saints for the 1030 Mass this weekend? Where are we going to go? Anytime we had a plan growing up, 
that um, you know we're going to make for the weekend if it did not include going to mass someplace well that was not the plan because you were going to go to mass someplace and for a while in Colorado Springs Colorado after shortly after the Second Vatican Council they were very loose on the interpretation of what constituted the time for the vigil on Saturday so sometimes we had masses at 12 or 12:10 on on Saturday afternoon for the vigil mass so I liked it but I would not have wanted to have the homily ready by then so that there's a decision to go in the first place, the, the way in which life is built around that decision. The, the Sunday, the week, um, it's just a stable part of life. Um, it doesn't often feel like a new decision, but it really is. It's, it's, a, it, you know, it's habitual habit, it, uh, a habit of faithfulness. Then there's uh, several steps um, which are more proximate, and that's the decision to go to Mass on this particular occasion. And I thought of just two little preparation steps. I'd like to just try them out on you. I think I can see the second hand up there. I'd like you to close your eyes if, you, if you're trusting enough. You don't have to, but, but I'd like you to think about, and I'd like you to think about for a minute, what has God been saying to you lately? Directly or in and through events, in and through people. So just take about a minute. I'll, don't worry about the time. I'll let you know when it's done. Ready, go. Okay, that's a minute. That's a long time in public, huh? But now that, that's, what, that's what it means to contemplate. One of the things it means to contemplate is to ask that kind of question and then leave a little bit of space of time to let an answer emerge, or perhaps you know it. Let's try it one more, one more minute. This time, just say to yourself these words, and nowhere in the presence of the Lord, I am here, I am yours. Just those very simple words for another minute. I may repeat them a couple times during, to keep you on track, but um, let's just stop. If you want to close your eyes or not, don't worry about that. But just say, I am here, I am yours. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. You're all contemplatives. Did you know that? I mean, that's what it means to contemplate, to pay attention to the fact that the Lord is in our midst and that we belong to him. And I mean, God is always speaking. We don't have a Buddhist God who is silent. Um, we have a God who speaks. And Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So to pay attention and as we come to Mass, you know, what, are, what have you been saying to me? Because if whatever you've been saying to me, I want to respond with myself. So that's one way of uh, preparing for Mass, about two minutes. Another thing is, who do I bring to the Lord? Uh, there's a little passage, the four verses there in Mark 6, 53 to 56, and people hear that Jesus is close by. So they go and they, f they go gather people and they bring them to Jesus so that Jesus can touch them or that they can touch Jesus. They go scurrying around. So another way of preparing is to scurry around. Who, do you, who has the Lord entrusted you to bring to him? You know, people in your family, friends, people in the world, people you don't know, people in Ukraine, um, whoever it is that the Lord puts on your heart to bring, to bring with you, um, to ask him to touch them. You can ask, what's in my heart to lift up? We say, lift up your, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Well, what is in my heart to lift up? Um, we don't have to get it all pretty. It can be gratitude. We can lift up what may we may consider bad things, emotions, anger, doubts, pride. The reference to Jeremiah there is when God tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter shop 
and I will show you something. So he goes down, he looks at the potter shop, and he's making something. And after Jeremiah watches for a while, he notices that whenever it turns out badly, he just tries again, making of the clay another pot of whatever sort he wants. So, you know, whatever gets misshapen, he just works it back in and keeps working it on. You can lift up boredom, boredom, I don't really want to be here. You know, we don't, we don't really have to be, want to be at Mass to go to Mass. It's not, hip, it's not hypocritical. Uh, it's once in a while I think in, in a confirmation homily, because people say it's boring, I don't get anything out, I feel like a hypocrite. I think, well, think about when you were six months old or eight months old and your mom got up in the middle of the night to take care of you or your dad to feed you and comfort you. And, you know, if they ever thought, this is boring, I don't get anything out of this. You know, let the kid cry. That we can do things, we can make decisions which are decisions of love without having the feeling to go along with it. That can catch up later. We can lift up hypocrisy. We can lift up joy, love, success, ordinary time, which is often overlooked, just the ordinary day-to-day stuff um, in our lives. We can consider what will I hear when I get there. Uh, read the readings for Mass. There are many sources. Um, you know, Magnificat, give us this day. The USCCB has the readings posted on the website. If you can come five minutes early, if possible, just to give you time to, to prepare. Um, and then to stay tuned and keep coming back. Um, that's part of one of the disciplines is the discipline to keep coming back because our minds wander away. And once they wander away, we can just call them back and be reunited and go on. So then the third part is in the moment because the Mass is a complex reality, a complex rite. There are a lot of different things going on. There are readings, there are responses, there are silences, there are homilies, uh, there's music. Pay attention. Again, part of contemplation is paying attention to what's actually happening. To listen, notice, is anybody missing tonight? You know, when you go to Mass, you probably go to the same Mass every, uh, every week. Is there anybody missing? I, at one of the synod listening sessions, I listened to a, a woman, she seemed to me somewhere 45 to 55, single, no children, and she had been away from the church for a while and came back. And she said at the table that, you know, I, I left for a while, she didn't say why she left, but she said, nobody even noticed I was gone. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's, it's something to notice around you. On the other hand, I remember being at St. Gabriel's and uh, there were two couples on the organizing committee, an older couple and a younger couple. And um, the older couple had lived there for a long time. And they said, you know, this, there's nothing going on in this parish. This is a, just a dead parish. And they were talking about that. And they said, well, we're, we're parishioners here. We can do something. And so they would start standing outside after math. They would just start talking to people, introducing themselves. And they introduced themselves to a, a young couple with three little kids. and. You know, they started talking to them, and, and this couple was right at the point of going to another church because there was nothing there for their kids. And because that couple reached out to them, they decided to stay. And because they stayed there, they became part of the organizing committee for the parish back in 1995 and 96. And um, still the younger couple is still active there today. Um, so there's so small things, words and gestures. Um, you know, we, we make the sign of the cross when we come in, which is a reminder of our baptism. Um, when we became sons and daughters of God, we enter Mass with that identity. We confess our failures to live up to it. Um, pay attention to some of the words that stuck out. I just listed here some that have stuck out for me for a long time. Be with your church throughout the world. At one point, my brother was in Colombia, and whenever I heard the words throughout the world, I thought of my brother in Colombia, that our church was a, a worldwide church. 
or listen to the prayers of this family that you have summoned before you. That we, when we come to Mass, we're summoned. You know, it sounds like going to the principal's office or getting a jury duty or something. You know, we really are, in a sense, commanded. You know, come. Um, remember those who have died in the peace of Christ and all the dead whose faith is known to you alone. You know, it's a wonderful time to remember the dead because they're also part of the communion of the church. Um, also to receive, to pay attention to what's being given and to receive it. All of life is gift, and every gift, as Pope Francis says, um, to be a gift needs someone disposed to receive it. The word of God proclaimed, to be listening as a disciple, not as an audience, um, but as a student bent on learning. The living word of God speaking now. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. God's revelation now in this moment. Um, you know, one of the things I emphasize so much in the homiletics institute that I'm participating in, that it's the living word of God for this community in this moment. You can't pull it off the internet, but it has to come from this, the, the preacher listening to the word of God from his heart to the hearts of those who are gathered because the Lord speaks to us heart to heart, forms our hearts according to his heart. And then to respond, to offer yourself, lift up your heart. And we can do that even without preparation, even after the fact. I find myself doing it after the fact a lot because I forget to do it. I'm distracted in the moment. Um, and then just res respond with what's called for, whether that's song or word or silence, contrition, conversion, gratitude. Um, you know, sometimes we're saying things like, Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. One of the things about a liturgical prayer is it sometimes expresses the attitudes of our heart, other times, it's to call forth those attitudes. It's, to, it's, to, it's like, you know, the, the, the director of the play saying, here, here are your lines, say this. And so we can say, Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face, even though we don't, in that moment, feel longing to see God's face, we can ask to take that on. Um, or how do I make a return to the Lord for all the good that he has given me? And in uh, the Constitution on the Church from Vatican II, which is entitled Lumen Gentium, uh, paragraph 10, says, you have made us a nation of priests. The priesthood of the laity all offer themselves along with the priest and through his hands. They're not passive participants, but active also making a priestly offering, the sacrifice of their own life. And then I just added a quote there from uh, uh, Romans. Um, Brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is what the Lord does for us. And ultimately, going to the back page, to be able to say what Jesus himself says, this is my body given for you. This is myself given for you. I'm here for you. I'm here as a servant. Um, and it is to affect all that we do, all our interactions. Um, it is a strengthening the life of the Holy Spirit in us, which has been given to us for some benefit. Um, to give that to God and every member of the human race, to be aware of that to all I meet today, uh, my flesh for the life of the world. In every encounter with another person, in everything we say or do, we seek to surrender ourselves to Jesus as a living sacrifice. Um, I came across some writings about the sacred heart of Jesus uh, just the other day, and the author said that you know any barrier between the heart of Christ and our heart is on our part. So we should ask the Lord, help me to lower the barriers in my own heart so that I can receive what you desire to give me. So I think the more, the, the piece I think that's left, left out in maybe a more explicit way is the decision, you know, how do I carry this out into the world? Because we're sent on mission from the Eucharist into the world to be tabernacles of the living word of God, the body and blood of Christ to whomever we meet this day. And quoting um, our um, 
North African friend, St. Augustine, if you sit at the table of a ruler, observe carefully what is set before you, then stretch out your hands knowing that you have to offer the same kind of gift yourself, that the gift obligates us. Um, and again, I just I'd left a quote there from Desiderio Desiderati, I have earnestly desired um, to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. So I wanted to, uh, there's one more question you may have noticed on the, uh, on the handout, on the first handout. Number three, in recent celebrations of the Eucharist, what stands out, what captures your attention? You know, if you just think back to the, the masses that you've attended recently, what has been, what captures your attention? Is it a prayer, uh, something in the Eucharistic prayer, something from the homily, something from the reading? And you can either go back to your same group or go to a different group for about eight minutes and just you know, offer some reflections on your own participation of late in the Eucharist um, you know, or maybe where the, the focal point or the center of gravity is for you in the Holy Eucharist. And then maybe we'll just have some questions or reflections from, the, from you afterwards. So ready, go. Will the owner of a white Ford station wagon license plate number BK2-423 please pick up the white paging telephone for a message? That works pretty well. So uh, do we have just a little bit of time? Is there any questions or reflections that any of you would like to say? Maybe three, and then we'll uh, have a closing prayer and blessing and uh, come back for tomorrow night or just come back tomorrow night. I mean, Pope Francis, uh, the question was about, I guess, confusion about, you know, the changes from Second Vatican II, some voices saying we should go back to the way it was before, um, and, you know, how do you live with that confusion? I mean, Pope Francis has written uh, what's called a motu proprio, which means just in his own, in his own authority, kind of talking about the, the mass as, as set forth by the Second Vatican Council as being the standard and also allowing for, you know, the Latin Mass celebrated according, there were, I think there were some reforms from the 50s and 60s under Pope Pius Twelfth, John Twenty-Third, and that it produced a new Latin Missal in 1962. And that's the one that's, that can be used still, you know, by certain designated communities. So in the Dallas Diocese, that's that modern day parish in Irving but it's, pretty, it's localized there, you know. Mm -hmm. The question about a way of assisting others to get back in the pews after COVID, um, personal invitation is one way. Um, I heard a figure today that we are at about 81% of what we were pre-COVID. We, we do a mass count every October and every May. I think some places like All Saints and St. Gabriel's does a mass count every week. But um, you know, we have an official count and we're at 81%. I think, um, I think personal invitation is one way. Um, and I mean, they have a, t a story to tell about the importance of the Holy Eucharist in, in your own life. I think for so many people, it's like an abstraction. It's, or it's, it's like a, you know, something out of the Middle Ages. And it, the pace at which it moves is, 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 is different than uh, entertainment pace. And so it, it, you know, it's almost like we have to attune ourselves to it, and I think that's difficult. But I mean, I don't, I don't really have a ready solution for other than invitation and prayer and you know, longing. Yeah. Elaborate, elaborate on conspiracy of grace. It's just a way of speaking about um, 
uh, yeah, divine providence and the way that different graces kind of, you know, for, for instance, I was, uh, after the talk last night, I was standing in uh, the sacristy with Father Javita, and he was telling me about, um, you know, celebrating the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe and getting to know that better and preaching about Mary and her love for humanity and how that is reflected in the apparition. But I, as I was listening to him ta talking, I was thinking, here you know, I'm talking to a man from Nigeria who through a, you know, a certain route has gotten from Nigeria through all the kind of formation he got there to the Archdiocese of Detroit, who called here 11 years ago and we came down and been working here. And you know, I started in Iowa and I went to Colorado and I came down here to Texas and I never wanted to stay in Texas because <laughs> at least the people in Colorado that I was around, we were not that fond of Texans. I mean, after the last couple of years, I'm fine, but you know, but, um, but it's just, you know, how all those things work so that, you know, two men from different parts of the world are standing in the, in the sacristy at All Saints in North Dallas talking about faith. And, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the, you know, the vast kind of forces and graces and coincidences that conspire to bring about those kind of interactions? Like, you know, how is it that, um, you know, Augustine is sitting at that precise point of his life and hears the word, take up and read, take up and read, and like, What's that about? It's like a ring around a rosy, a pocket full of posy. And he thought, well, maybe it's just like that kind of thing that kids say in games. But then he went back to where he was sitting and picked up, and he just opened up Romans to a miscellaneous page because he heard that people did that. And, so, and, that, and those are the words that he fell on. It's like something broke through. Um, you know, only God can orchestrate those kind of things. So that's what I kind of have in mind. The, anybody want to do one question over here, then we'll just do a closing blessing, because I was looking over here the whole time. I didn't see anything from this side. No? Okay. So now, tomorrow night, um, we'll look at um, the Lord's coming in glory and majesty, and when all is made manifest, and, uh, and as we watch for the day and then seek to inherit the great promise in which we now to dare to hope. Even the concept of daring to hope you know, like it takes daring to hope that it's not a passive thing, but it calls us to, you know, to express a very strong response in the presence of the Lord. Um, how do we do that? So would you like to end just with a short blessing, maybe just stand for this? To God, whose power now at work in us can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go straight home. <laughs>